Um, Let me pray, and then we'll get into this very, very challenging passage. So, Father, thank you so much for your word. And, um, Lord, I pray that, um, God, I just pray that we would all be open to to the ways that your spirit wants to challenge us today from your word. And, Lord, that we would leave here um, encouraged, challenged, um, and, Lord, we'd leave here wanting to please you with our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it might surprise you, um, but I, uh, I've only ever taken one philosophy class, and I barely passed it. Uh, I mean barely passed it. And uh, it, the guy that taught the philosophy class, he, he didn't normally teach it. Um, he was filling in for the normal philosophy professor, and he said, Hey, I just want you all to know, none of you are going to do very well in this class, but it's okay because I didn't do very well in my philosophy class and I'm still an okay person. That's how he introduced himself to the class. And he said, and just, to, just so you know, just to, to prove, you, uh, prove to you that this is possible, uh, you're probably all gonna do really poorly on the first exam, but I guarantee none of you will do as badly as I did. And to prove it to you, because I've, I've kept that exam my entire life, and I will show it to you that when I hand you the exams back. So I'm like, okay, cool. I studied really, really hard for this exam. Like I, I, I was like, I'm gonna make sure that I, you know, I do well because he said we're not gonna. And um, he hands them back, and I got a 27 percent. I don't know if you know the grading scale, but that's failing. Uh, that that's like well, well, well below failing. Uh, so I got a 27 percent, and uh, and he then puts his up on. This is back in the day when we had overhead projectors. I'll explain to some of you what that is later. But he put his up on the overhead projector for all of us to see, and he got a 37%, which means I did worse, which means he didn't come through on his guarantee. And so I went up to him, and I was like, hey, I know you know this already, but I did worse than you, so what are we going to do about that? And uh, he allowed me to do a little bit of extra credit to, to catch back up. And uh, to be honest, I, I only... I only remember two things from that that semester from that class, um, and one is Plato's Forms and Shadows. We could talk about that sometimes. An interesting theory. Um, the other is the one I really want to talk about today. And one thing that really stuck uh, has stuck with me to this day is something that Socrates claimed about himself. So he made this very bold claim about himself. Uh, he actually claimed, amongst all the philosophers in Athens, where he was philosophizing. Uh, he claims to be the wisest man in all of Athens, which sounds really arrogant, doesn't it? And uh, do you know why he was able to say that? He said, he said, I'm the wisest man in all of Athens because I'm the only one here willing to admit that I don't know everything. And that stuck with me. That was the one, one of the two things that I remember from my philosophy class. And so what's he saying? Of that? Well, I think what he's saying is that real wisdom only begins when you take a proper look at yourself. It begins only when you look at yourself and see where your weaknesses are, where your flaws are. What, what Socrates was claiming is that if you're not able to do that, you'll never be wise. And actually, the Bible text that we're looking at, it says very much the same thing. And let me just remind you, though, briefly where we are. So far all year, we've been looking at the, the book of Ephesians. And uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, is a great first century philosopher in his own right. Um, he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. And in the first half, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul gives a, he's, he's really giving a description of who a Christian is. So like what happens to you at the moment you become a Christian. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, he gives all the theology of that. Um, it talks about what we receive. 
And what we've talked about is that we receive renewal, right? When you trust in Christ by faith, you receive renewal that comes from him. That's what we've been learning in the first half. Um, we said that renewal always comes from the outside in. Uh, it always comes from Jesus Christ um, by faith. And we turn the corner uh, just after Easter into the second half. And in the second half, Paul then gives a description of how a Christian is to live. So the first half is like what a Christian is. The second half is how does a Christian live? What should their life be like? And that's chapters four, five, and six. It's all about the practical steps uh, that we take now that we're Christians. And so it's a way of living in response to what God has done for us in Jesus. And in today's text is a way of helping us become this mature Christian of taking the truth of Christianity and actually working it out in your life and making it practical, Paul introduces the idea of wisdom. And so I want you to think of wisdom almost like it's a guide to maturity. Wisdom is your guide. It's the thing that kind of grabs you by the hand and walks you along to maturity. And when we tend to think of wisdom, we we tend to think of knowing the right thing to say, don't we? And so the reason uh, to become wise is so that you know, you're the one who has the sage advice. You have the right thing to say to your kids, to your friends, to your family, to people at work, right? Well, that's what we think of when we think of wisdom. In other words, we tend to equate it with advice. But biblical wisdom has actually much more to do with what you do than what you say. Much more to do with what you do than what you say. Um, here's a very crude definition of wisdom. This is, this is from the Ken Lippel Dictionary. I made this one up, okay? It's a very crude definition of wisdom. Uh, Wisdom isn't knowing the right thing to do or even saying it to someone else. Here's the definition. Wisdom is doing the right thing over and over and over again so that it becomes automatic. That's wisdom. Doing the right thing over and over and over again so that it becomes automatic. And so that's what we're going to see in today's passage. It's going to show us that sin is the thing that keeps us from wisdom, constantly keeps us from wisdom. But wisdom, on the other hand, is the thing that keeps us from sin. And so wisdom is perhaps our best tool for unlocking or releasing Christian maturity. Remember, it's our guide. It's the thing that guides us through um, to maturity. Uh, And so we're going to see three things in here. First, why we need wisdom. Second, how we get wisdom. And then thirdly, how we become wise. Because getting it and becoming it are two different things. We'll see that. Uh, So let's just go through this. First, why we need wisdom. Um, And there's at least two very obvious reasons in this text why it is that we need wisdom. And the first one we're going to look at actually comes right at the end. Uh, Look again at verses 15 and 16. And these two verses, they actually kind of give us the logic of the entire passage. So it says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And so in its broadest strokes, here's the logic of the passage. Live wisely because the days are evil. And there at the end of verse 16, that's the first reason we need wisdom. It's because the days are evil, because the time we're living in. Why do we need it? Because of the time we're living in, the days are evil. And really briefly, all he's saying here is that all around us every day is every kind of opportunity to do evil. I mean, really, there's not much stopping you from like coming up and lying to my face after church today. There's literally nothing would stop you from doing that. there's nothing to stop you from, from stealing something or for gossiping about someone. There's nothing that's going to stop you from doing that. Or there's really nothing stopping you from going out and sleeping around with whoever you want to, whenever you want to. There's nothing uh, to keep you from doing shady business deals. or what, Like, you think of the thing, and there's really pretty much nothing stopping you from doing it. In fact, what this text is saying is even beyond that, a lot of those things 
our culture would encourage you to do. And that's what he means when he says the days are evil. And you name it, the opportunity is there. Um, I'm willing to guess, though, willing to guess, looking at your faces, uh, or at least the top halves of your faces, that uh, most of you would say, well, yeah, I'm a good person, though. I'm probably not going to do any of those things. So I'm good. I'm good. Right? I'm a good person. Uh, For the most part, as I'm aware, you are all pretty good immoral people, and so it's not really a problem. Except that, what the second reason the text gives us for why we need reason, um, why we need wisdom. And the second reason is this, it's, it's because our hearts are dark. That's what it talks about. Uh, now, all of verses 3 through 8 tell us this, and that is the part where you're like, you get to the end of verse 8, and you're like, whew, finally, that's done. Um, all of verses 3 through 8 tell us this, but it says specifically in verse 8, you were once, in, in, uh, you were once darkness. You were once darkness. And even more specifically in verse 11, when he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And so that word darkness there, it's a a summary of everything that came before in verses three to seven. He's summarizing it all in one word. Um, That word darkness, it's, it's a summary for sin. And sin is disobeying the moral code that is given to us by God. Uh, He gave it to us uh, not only in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end, but he's actually, Romans tells us, written it on our hearts. And so sin is disobeying the moral code that's given to us by God, both in the Word and the one that's written on our hearts, our conscience. Um, And so if we disobey either of those, the Bible would say that's sin. In other words, in our passage, it talks about it as darkness. But notice these two places where he talks about darkness. He talks about it in two different ways. In verse 8, he says, you were once dark. Do you see that? It's not you were in darkness. It says you were once darkness. And there he's talking about our status. He's talking about our state of being. In other words, he's talking about who we are like it, as, a, as a person. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But then in verse 11, he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And that's where he's talking about our actions. He's talking about the things that we do. And in verses 3 to 7, he, he lays out what some of those actions are. And all those actions have to do with the moral code that God has given to us. Again, either in his word or written on our hearts. Uh, from the start of the Bible to the end. So he mentions sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Now, why those things? Why does he list those? I mean, is that all there is? No, of course not. He could have just kept going. Uh... Or are these the worst of the deeds of darkness? Are these like the top things? Well, I'm not sure that like a coarse joke is, is in the top 10 list of worst things that you could do. So what's he doing there? Well, he's not trying to show you everything, every deed of darkness. He's not even trying to show you the worst of them. I think he's trying to show us the whole range of the deeds of darkness, that it, it goes everywhere from something we do in our bodies to just maybe a word you might say. And so I think he's trying to show us the whole range of it. And think about it like this. There's lots of churches in the world that would say what the Bible says about sex is totally obsolete. We can just forget what it says about that. But what it says about greed is absolute. And so what it would say is, hey, you can go and have sex with whoever you want, but don't be greedy. Make sure you're generous. There's some some people who would, who would do that or flip it around. There'd be some who would say, What the Bible says about sex is absolute. You've got to follow it. 
but then they're ignoring what the Bible says when it talks about greed. So they may not be sinning sexually, but then they ignore the parts of the Bible that speak about being generous or giving to the poor. And you can find all kinds of examples with everything else on the list too. And so what I think Paul is doing in giving this list is saying that the moral code given in the Bible, in other words, the way that best pleases the Lord, uh, it's comprehensive. You don't get to pick and choose. It's not like, oh, I like numbers one, four, seven, and nine, but the other ones I'm going to leave. It's comprehensive. And even though we have a tendency to pick it apart, a tendency to say we don't want to follow some parts, um, the Bible doesn't let us do that. It's totally comprehensive. And so sin is disobedience in your behavior to God's moral code. And that's what he's getting at with this. In other words, sin, it works itself out in your deeds, in your actions. But it's not just our actions. It's not, just, it's not as if we could just stop doing things and then that problem would go away. Um, because remember verse 8, he says, you were once darkness. The darkness, it's also, it's our state of being. In other words, he's saying that our hearts are the center of our being. Like we, we ourselves are darkness, or we were. And you see that in verse 5. In verse 5, he gives a summary of the deeds again. And then he says this. Uh, this is where he defines it. Such a person is an idolater. Now, when he mentions idolatry, he's trying to get, uh, trying to get you to think of the first commandment, that you should have no other gods before me. Remember that? That's the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. Um, and that command is first and foremost, maybe even exclusively, about the heart. It's about how you relate to God. And so what God is saying with that command is, if there's anything more important to you than me, if there's anything that gives you more meaning for life than me, anything that gives you a deeper sense of value and worth than me, anything that you love more than me, anything you center your life on more than me, what he's saying is that is your God that's who you're worshiping or what you're worshiping that's your religion even if it's a good thing even if it's the best thing you could possibly think of you've made that your god it's an idol even if it's your children even if it's your spouse even if it's your hope for a spouse even if it's your career even if it's a noble cause if you love long for look to lift up anything more than god that's your idol and what Paul is saying is that's in, our, that's in everyone's heart. It's in everyone's heart. That's why God gave it as the first command. And so let's try and put these two back together. So being a wise person, in, in verse 15, he says to be wise, live as a wise person. Being a wise person is the ideal. What this is showing us is that sin is the thing that keeps us from being that. Sin's the thing that gets in the way. It's not lack of knowledge. It's not lack of information. You can have all the information. It's your actions and your heart. And so remember my crude definition of wisdom. A wise person is someone who does the right thing over and over and over and over again until it becomes automatic. And what this text is saying is to become wise, you've got to be willing to change your heart. You've got to be willing to change your actions. And so that's why we need wisdom. We need it because without it, we're destined to continue to do the fruitless deeds of darkness. We're destined to, to be darkness. Um, and because the days are evil, we're continually going to be tempted to be and to do that. And so we've got to get wisdom. And Proverbs 4 actually tells us to get wisdom, even if, even if it costs us everything we have. Proverbs 4 says, get wisdom, though it costs everything. And so how do we get it? Well, that's point two. How do we get wisdom? Uh, we'll look at this seven times 
in there, it mentions uh, the word light or it makes reference to light. Uh, but notice verse 13. Verse 13, he says, But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Now, what's he saying? Well, do you remember what our friend Socrates said? He said he was the wisest man in Athens, not because he knew everything, but because he was the only one willing to admit that he didn't. In other words, he was the only one willing to accept and to even confess the truth about himself. And that's what Paul is saying here, that the way we get wisdom, the starting point for wisdom, is recognizing and admitting that we're in darkness. What does he say? Look at verse 8. He says, live as children of light. Verse 11, expose the fruitless deeds of darkness. Verse 13, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And so the starting point of becoming a wise person is actually to step out of darkness into light. In other words, to be willing to look into your own heart and see the darkness that's really in there. And so the only way that you can become wise is to admit that your heart is darkness. I heard this incredible story recently about a Holocaust survivor named uh, Yehiel Denor. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but let's just go with that's his name. Um, and he was present at the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And if you know your World War II history, you know that Adolf Eichmann was one of the architects of the Holocaust. He was one of the ones who sat down and was like, here's how we can exterminate a bunch of people. Uh, and then he was part of executing that plan. And after the, after the war, Eichmann uh, was able to escape and, and disappeared for a while. And um, uh, eventually in the 60s, they caught him and they put him on trial. And what they did at this trial is they, they actually invited a bunch of people who had lived through the Holocaust, Holocaust survivor, survivors. Um, and uh, they invited Yehiel Denor. And, and he lived through one of the worst atrocities in human history. So he would have seen his family, he would have seen his friends, his neighbors, um, arrested, imprisoned, um, killed. He would have just lived through this atrocity. Um, and so in the early 60s, Eichmann was caught and uh, Denor was there at his trial. And, and, uh, and after the trial, Yehiel Denor is being interviewed by Mike Wallace. And during the interview, Wallace showed him a video of the moment when uh, Yehiel Denor was brought into the courtroom where Eichmann was already sitting. Uh, the very moment that he saw for the first time this man who planned and executed the Holocaust, who probably uh, is responsible for killing many of his family and friends and neighbors. And uh, it's this incredible moment, apparently, when Yehiel Denor sees Adolf Eichmann, he begins to sob uncontrollably, and he collapses into a heap on the ground. And after Wallace shows him the clip, he asks him, well, hey, what, what happened? What's going on in that moment? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Was it fear? Was it rage? Was it grief? And Yehiel Denor said the most incredible thing. This is a direct quote from the interview. He said, I suddenly realized he was no demon. He was no Superman. He was an ordinary human being exactly like me. And suddenly I became terrified about myself. I saw that I am capable of the same things. And that's why he collapsed to the ground. He looked into his own heart and saw darkness. Now that right there, that moment, is an incredible picture of the beginning of wisdom. In that moment, Yehiel Denor came into the light. He, he exposed the darkness of his own heart. He recognized that he's just as capable as anyone to do evil. And so in that moment, he saw something that most of us aren't really willing to look in and do. 
that in all of us there is a darkness. There, there's a darkness that's capable of doing wrong, of doing evil. And so that's what it looks like to live as children of light, to actually expose it in our own hearts, to actually look in and see that we're capable of the very same things. And so the very first wise act that you can do is to admit your sin or admit your, admit your capacity to sin and expose your need to have it dealt with, to bring yourself into the light. And so here's the principle again. If sin is what keeps us from wisdom, then wisdom is what will keep us from sin. The first wise act being coming into the light. So um, let me give you two reasons why wisdom will keep you from sin. The first is the wrath of God, and the second is the light of Christ. So the wrath of God. And Paul says something here in verse 6 that we don't really like. Like this is part of, the, part of that section that you're kind of gulping as Emmy read it to us earlier. Like, is he really going to talk about this? Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, in our culture today, we can't conceive of a God who has wrath. We struggle with that in our culture, and we struggle for a couple of reasons. The first reason is the idea that anyone would have authority over me is actually kind of offensive in this culture. It's like, well, who are you to have any authority over me? Right? The ultimate authority in our culture today is the self. And so who, would you, who are you to come in and say that something I've done is wrong? Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why we struggle with it. And so therefore, no one could punish me. But the other reason we don't like the idea of God's wrath, uh, that it would come on someone, is that we misunderstand the Bible's meaning of the word wrath. Now, our English word today, if you look up the definition, um, it, uh, wrath is something that's violent, something that's almost unjust. We think of someone losing their temper. But that's not the Bible's definition of wrath. It's not even the old English definition of wrath. We've changed it over time. The Bible's definition of wrath is fair punishment. Do you remember this from the Bible? An eye for an eye? That's the Bible's idea of wrath. And that's fair. Sin incurs guilt. If you sin, you are guilty. You're not, it's not just that you're kind of messed up and it's okay and we'll excuse it. You're guilty. And that's what it means to say that God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. And so listen, the only way that God can be just the only way he can be just is for the guilty to be punished. You do not want a God who is not just. You do not want a God who does not have wrath. Because what that means is that everything could go unpunished then. And so God has wrath, and that's a good thing. He's not vindictive. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's just. He's fair. And so what this is saying and what the Bible makes clear over and over again is that each one of us, we all deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve it. We all deserve fair punishment. Unless. Unless you're willing to humble yourself. Like Socrates, admit your weakness. Unless you're willing to come into the light, as our text says. To actually bring it out, to expose it. Because the second half of our principle is wisdom keeps you from sin. Right? So sin keeps you from wisdom, but wisdom keeps you from sin. And I want you to see how. Look at how. It comes, in the, comes from the light of Christ. That's the second reason we need wisdom the light of Christ. Because look at what we get when we get this wisdom. Look again at verse 8. Do you see what it says? It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And notice there's not, there's not a preposition there. It's not you are light in the Lord. It's you are 
So not you are in light, it's you are light in the Lord. Not you are in light, you are light. In verse 13, it says that everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And what does that metaphor mean? Well, it says it in the next verse in verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And so to be light means to be a person who is full of goodness and righteousness and truth. And so let's think about this for a minute. How can he say that? How can he possibly say that? He's just got done saying that you're a person of darkness who does dark deeds. How can he now say that you're a person of light, that you are light? Well, you can say it because look again at verse 8. You are light in the Lord. You're not light on your own. You're light in the Lord. It's his light. You don't get the light until you're in Christ. Now that phrase actually links us back to the first part of Ephesians. And if you remember the first part of Ephesians in chapter 1, it says that when a person receives Christ into their lives by faith, they're placed in him. They're in, placed in Christ. Anyone who trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins by faith, Paul said, is united to Christ. And what that means is all that is his becomes yours. And all that is yours becomes his. Which means all the darkness in your heart, all the dark deeds, they're put on him. They actually become his. That's precisely what is happening at the cross. And it's even referenced. Do you know that it says at, at midday, at noon, when Jesus is on the cross, the sky actually goes dark. That's your darkness being put on him. That's him becoming darkness. Remember we talked about God's wrath for sin. Well, on the cross, Jesus takes the wrath of God, the just punishment of God for our sins, as he becomes darkness, right? All that's yours becomes his. And instead of that, you and I get Instead of the wrath, we get the light. We get his light. We get his righteousness. We get his goodness. We get his truthfulness. We get the light of Christ. Down in verse 14, I love this. It says, Christ will shine on you. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. And that means that when God the Father looks at you, instead of seeing darkness, instead of seeing a list of all the deeds of darkness that you've done, instead of that, he sees Christ. He sees the light of Christ. You are light because you're in Christ and he's in you. If he, God sees, God the Father sees the light of Christ reflecting off of you. Um, Martin Luther, who's the great reformer in the 16th century, he used to tell a story to explain this. And the story went something like this. It's been kind of morphed and changed over the years, so it's roughly my version of the story that he would tell. That there's a prince who's looking for a bride. And he falls in love with uh, not a princess, but a peasant, uh, a poor woman. And she doesn't have all the social graces expected, right? She grew up on the farm. She didn't grow up in the, the court of the king. Uh, she doesn't have the expensive clothing. She's maybe not uh, even very beautiful by the standards of the day because her fingernails are dirty, her hair is probably unkempt, her teeth maybe not so pearly white. And so she's not what anyone expects of a princess, right? She's not Kate. She's, she's something else. But the prince loves her nonetheless, and so he marries her. And do you know what happens at the moment that they're united? All that belongs to the prince, the castle, the horses, the kingdom, all of it becomes hers. 
The minute before the vow is made, she's poor. But the minute it's happened, it happens, she's rich. The minute before the vow, she's a peasant. But the minute that they make the vow, she's a princess. She's royalty. And that's what this is talking about when it says that you are light in the Lord. And Christ will shine on you. All that is his becomes yours. He makes a vow to you. And in him, you are now light. And so how do we get that? Well, this text has been saying all along that wisdom is the way in. Wisdom is how we get into this. And and what we've been seeing all along is that wisdom begins with seeing yourself rightly. It begins with with having the humility to do what we did earlier in the service, to, to come before the Lord and confess your brokenness, to say that you need Christ, to say that without him you are darkness. And so wisdom actually leads you to admit your need for help. And so we get wisdom by admitting our need for it. And as we do that, we are actually stepping into the light of Christ. And so that's how we get it. It's how we access it. But remember I said at the beginning, how you get it and how you become it are two different things. So how do you become it? Because remember, our definition of wisdom is doing the right thing over and over and over and over again. So that it becomes automatic. That it actually becomes who we are. And so wisdom is both something we receive and it's something we become. And that's our third point. And it'll be brief. Thirdly, how, how we become wise. Look again at verses 15 and 16. Because here in these two verses, uh, there's two phrases in here I want to look at. Uh, verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So here's the two phrases I'll tell you. Around. One is, he says, how you live. And then the other phrase that's in there, he says, making the most of every opportunity. And if we can understand these two phrases, we're well on our way to becoming wise. Um, so let's try. The phrase, how you live, uh, the word there is actually walk. It's translated as live because all through the New Testament, the word walk is, is a metaphor for, for your life, for how you live. And so it's a good translation uh, to say, be careful how you live. But it does miss the nuance that Paul's attempting to get across here. Careful how you walk. What is walking? What is it? It's just a repeated action over and over and over and over again, isn't it? You just want left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Uh, and you do it until it becomes part of you. And do you think about that action anymore? Like if you got up and just walked to the other side of the tent, are you going to think, okay, uh, it's the left one and then the, uh, the right one. And then it's the, like, you don't, you're not thinking about it. You just do it. It's just part of who you are. It's second nature. But I bet there was a time when you did need to think about it, when you were very little, just learning how to walk. I bet your little mind was thinking very hard about what you were doing. And so when Paul says, be very careful how you walk, that's what he has in mind. This repeated action over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. Now he mentions two ways of walking, two ways of living. He says, not as unwise, but as wise. And what's he saying there? He's saying that it... It can be just as easy, just as easy, just as second nature for us to live as unwise as it is for us to live as wise. In other words, start walking in a way now that means wisdom becomes second nature to you. That's what he's getting at. Because it's just as easy for you to just take step after step after step of of unwise walking until it becomes second nature. And so what he's saying is, do that, but do it so that wisdom becomes second nature. 
And that's what he means when he says making the most of every opportunity. That's the second phrase in these last couple of verses. What he's getting at there is that every single moment, every moment that you have, this moment right now, the next moment, every single moment is an opportunity to take a step of wisdom and therefore to become wise. In fact, if you only wait until the big moments of life to try and be wise, you'll not end up being wise at all. So if you only think about, um, you know, big decisions in life and how you can make a wise decision when the big decision comes, guess what? You probably won't make a wise decision. What Paul is saying is that if you want to be wise in the big moments of life, when you take the big steps, you've got to be able to do it in the small ones. Um, let me illustrate this and then, then we'll be done. Um, Sorry, I'm giving you two illustrations from when I was in college. But um, I, I had the cushiest job on campus when I was in college. I worked at the gym, um, and not because I was wanting to work out, but because it was such an easy job. Uh, and we were right in the center of Chicago. We had the nicest gym other than the, the United Center where the Chicago Bulls played. We had the nicest gym in the whole city. And so the NBA teams that would come to play the Bulls would come to our gym to have a practice before the game. And so part of my job was always to, like, look after those teams when they came in, which was amazing because I got to, like, hang out with all my heroes. Um, and uh, there was one day I remember uh, the Toronto Raptors came in for a practice, which, by the way, at that time the Bulls weren't very good, so they didn't really need to practice. They could have just showed up and beat them. But uh, they came in for a practice, and they did their normal thing. And then they, they said, hey, could you keep the gym closed off for a little while longer because one of the players wants to, to just do a little workout. So I was like, sure, no problem. Uh, the player was Vince Carter. I, it's too bad Daniel's not here because he'll know who that is. Uh, Joy knows. Um, and uh, Vince Carter was one of the, he was an all-star almost his entire career. And but he, what he was known for was like the sort of high-flying slam dunks, like doing really cool things in the air. He was not known as like a, a perimeter shooter from far away from the basket. Uh, but he was getting on in his years in the NBA. And I think he knew that if he wanted to continue to be a good player, he had to work on his perimeter game. He had to learn how to shoot three-pointers, and he had to learn how to, how to do that. And so Vince Carter stayed around after practice. And uh, it was just him and another um, coach. And he just stood outside the three-point line, and he just kept taking shot after shot after shot after shot after shot after shot. He just moved his way all the way around. And he did this for a good 30, 40 minutes. And do you know what was amazing? He made almost every single one of them. He made almost every single one of them. And do you know, do you know what he's doing? There's wisdom. Over and over again, the exact same motion. Wisdom, that's what he was doing. He was, he was building up basketball wisdom. He didn't, he didn't learn to become a three-point shooter in the game. That would have been a failure. He doesn't go to the, to the stadium to do it. He does it on the practice court. So when he's in the stadium and the game's on the line and the ball's in his hand, it's just it's automatic, it's just wisdom. That's what Paul is saying. That's how you get it. Over and over again, make the wise decision in the small steps. And when the big one comes, that's how you become wise. And so it means today you're careful about how you live. You do your best to make a wise decision in how you spend this afternoon. You make a wise decision in how you spend this evening. About the words you say, about the activities you do, about the things you think about, the decisions that you make. And then you do that again tomorrow and the next day and the day after that until eventually it's second nature. Eventually you're a wise person. And so wisdom, it's something that you get. 
It's something that you access through Christ, something you receive, but it's also something you become by being careful how you walk. And if you do that, then sin will no longer keep you from wisdom. And then wisdom will do its job of making you mature. It will keep you from sin. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we want to be wise. We want to be people who uh, make wise decisions today. And Lord, thank you that you give us your spirit. Thank you that uh, Jesus Christ himself is wisdom. And so, Lord, would you make us wise? Would you give us that wisdom? And Lord, give us the strength to make decision after decision um, to be wise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.